0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Eyal Shinar, co founder and executive chairman of Fundbox, a company focused on disrupting the 21 trillion B2B commerce market by launching the world's first B2B payments and credit network. Since inception in 2013, Fundbox has raised over $300 million in equity from leading investors like Kostla Ventures, General Catalyst, Spark Growth Capital, and Jeff Bezos. It's worth noting, Ayal is also an MBA graduate from our very own Wharton School. We talked about company origins, customer acquisition and distribution strategies, entrepreneurial challenges, reflections around the PPP loan program in the U.S., and the company's incredibly meaningful role at the height of COVID to disperse these loans to small businesses, as well as Ayal's thoughts on the key and strategic roles of fintech and tech during the pandemic, lessons for entrepreneurs, and a whole lot more. This was a fantastic episode, and we're grateful that Ayal joined us. And now, without further ado, please join us in a great conversation with Eyal Shinar. Eyal, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's very nice to have you here. It's a little bit extra nice to have a Wharton MBA joining the show. So we're very grateful for you taking the time. Can we start by hearing perhaps a bit about your
1: background? Sure. I wish we could do it in person in Philly. Kind of miss it, but we have to do with the zoom. So my background, as you can tell by my accent, I'm originally from Israel. spent most of my childhood there, although I spent some time in Switzerland in a boarding school, and then in 2004, moved to the U.S. to do my uh, MBA at Wharton, did a summer internship at Castle Harlan, which is a buyout shop in uh, New York. And then in the second year, I got introduced to Vikram Pandit through another Wharton friend of mine and joined the startup, a small hedge fund called Old Lane with over $5 billion of assets under management and started to work with Vikram towards the end of my second year, which was, in a way, it was a startup. We were not many people focused mostly on quantitative and commodity trading. And fairly quickly after the fund was sold to Citigroup to lead those alternative investments, as much as I, like the team, I didn't want to stay and work for a bank with back then it was 300,000 people. So I joined Battery Ventures, which is a VC firm. They're also doing buyout and gross equity investment with three offices, one in Boston, one in the Silicon Valley, and one in uh, Israel. And focused mostly on uh, fintech and deep tech wallet battery. And without intention to ever starting a company, got fascinated with the opportunity that kind of introduced itself through a lot of diligence work at battery on a few different opportunities. And to cut a long story short, came up with a fun books concept and decided to take the big leap from the cushy side of the investment world to the trouble water of uh, starting a company. And the thesis behind it, that was back in 2013, we started the company, was basically almost orthogonal to the Funbooks opportunity, meaning it was pretty clear that a few big tech trends happening, you know, toward 2012, 2013. One was this just confluence of data and bigger trend of digitalization, where more and more data moved to the cloud through an app ecosystem. So all of a sudden you had an app for inventory management system for restaurants, accounting software for sole prop, accounts receivable management, accounts payable management. All of a sudden, you have very granular, high quality data in a digital way that not only is there, it's also accessible through a whole set of uh, API ecosystem. Today, you know, it's pretty commoditized, but back in the fact that you can integrate to a data source through an API, whether it's a private or public API, was a big game changer and basically made Funbox possible. And the third, let's call it secular tech trend, was just developments and innovation around machine learning technologies that allow us to pull the data in real time, draw very accurate conclusions, store the data in the back and keep the model running in the background while accumulating more and more inputs into the model or samples into the models and eventually we made the leap of faith and started the company in early 2013 with a vision of building a b2b payment and credit network starting from the credit side and focused very narrowly in a way on businesses that's using accounting software mostly through quickbooks and freshbooks to integrate into their product experience without having the business change the way they operate or manage the business and finance, just bringing the credit and the payment to the point of financial need or context or trigger. So that was in 2013. And since then, it's been over seven years. Company grew very nicely. Today, we are a much larger, profitable company. We had an interesting test of our thesis around machine can do a better job than a human during the corona time. And happy to say that we grew very fast during Corona, but we also turned profitable at the company. So all of the question marks we had around the thesis were answered and in the right way.
0: This is the ultimate test in many ways for the fintech space. Can you talk about, you mentioned a little bit of this, but I'd love to hear more about some of your achievements to improve the lending experience, because I know that's something you focus on. And on that note, do you think the rest of, of the industry is moving in the right direction as well.
1: Yeah. So our thesis was, financial services should be consumed just like any other product, whether you're a business, whether you're a consumer. It doesn't make sense to have the user experience of a business owner that goes to a bank with a file full of folders with paper running around between banks, lenders, accountants. It should be something very seamless. And the reason it's possible is because all of the data is accessible almost instantly. And what Funbox can allow a business today is without leaving your whatever dashboard you're using, whether it's the accounting service or payroll service or your event planning service through Eventbrite, you can just connect to Funbox at any point of need. You're getting basically underwritten in under a minute and getting approved at the same time. So that's something that didn't exist before. So the tension in fintech is you want to create a great user experience and almost instant approval or rejection process. But at the same time, unlike almost any other industry, you have a very high risk that if you're proving too quickly, you can actually incur a lot of losses. So what we felt from the early days, even before we started the company officially, was that the underwriting engine, the model, the technology is going to be the most important strategic piece of the business. Can you use all of this data and collect them instantly and run them through new sets of models that are being updated on a weekly basis to come up with a probability of payment? And once we felt we have that, we were able to offer a very strong underwriting solution on the back end without adding the friction to the end user, meaning the small business owner.
0: And it sounds like the distribution model was also not fixed, but you have a much better distribution model than a lot of the lenders out there because you're integrating with these platforms that your customers already use, right?
1: Yes. So that was a big driver for us. A, like philosophically, whether it's fintech or not, Many people focus heavily on the product, which is the right thing to do, but they tend to neglect the distribution channel. And as most people learn the hard way, it's not enough to have a perfect product. It's just as important to have the right distribution channels. And what this whole ecosystem of new platforms allow us to do is not only fast integration to data, highly relevant data, but also to distribute the product right at the point of financial trigger or right at the point where it's the right context for a business to use credit. So, for example, if you're using uh, QuickBooks and you have outstanding invoices that are not paid yet, but you know they're going to get paid in pretty high probability, that's the right point in the product to introduce the option to use credit. So you can get paid from Funbox on the invoice today, and once they get paid, you pass back. I'm simplifying a little bit, but in essence, that's a product. Or if you're planning an event, as a freelancer or a small shop, usually have a lot of pocket cash expenses. And after the event is concluded, a few days later, usually get paid. But there's always a gap between the time the work and the expenses have been done. And you provided the product or the service and the time you're actually getting paid in cash. And because of the whole digital ecosystem of those apps, we managed to embed ourselves in that user experience. And it's the exact point in time when you need it you getting the cash flow optimization tool or the credit tool that you need. So that was a very key part of our success. And that was the biggest part of our distribution in the early days. And until today, we're trying heavily to focus distribution, not on organic or more traditional channels, but to have this leg into the product. Ayal,
0: can you take us through the beginning of the journey and, and how did you approach Building your initial team, and also
1: what kind of company culture did you set out to create from day one? Sure, you know, started to build the team before there was a company because the thesis made a lot of sense as an investor. But as you probably know, you can have the best idea, but it's all going to come down to the execution. And it was pretty clear that the next player in this market that want to reach a real scale has to be a tech player, meaning the bet was technology and machine can do a better job than human, especially when it comes to assessing uh, probabilities and risk in in large numbers. So my focus was we don't need to find credit people, at least not to bring them into the company or even payment people. We're going to augment the board and the advisory team with those. But what we need as a DNA is a true technology company DNA. And you know, having the advantage of being on the VC side, I had a pretty good network of uh, potential tech co-founders. And you know, once I find the right co-founders with the right tech background, I was actually initially looking also for a CEO for the company. And it's not as easy as it may sound. The good ones are not really growing on trees. So it took me some time and I said, you know what? I'm pretty obsessed with the idea right now. I can't find anyone else to do it. I'm going to make the jump. I'm going to leave the world of investments for now. And I'm going to focus on building that company. And all of a sudden, it's been seven years of me being CEO. And the foundation of the company is based on this thesis of this is a tech company first. And all of the approach that we took empirically during those seven years, was not a traditional credit approach. It was a very big bet on data and what you can do with the data in the 21st century and have better predictions than the traditional way to underwrite risk. And even today, I think 60, 65% of our headcount are tech people. We don't have a single underwriter in the business. We do have very experienced credit and risk people. But even today, from the very early days, the process is 100% automatic. There's no human involvement in the process and the emphasis of creating really an agile tech culture that we like to speak of ourselves as a data science company that happened to focus on financial services. And that's still the case today. So the culture would be a pretty typical tech culture or a startup tech culture. You know, we founded the company in Tel Aviv, which is a pretty vibrant ecosystem of tech. I moved to the Silicon Valley relatively early on, a year after founding the company in 2014. And that made perfect sense for us because the right talent is usually around here. Now we expanded beyond Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley. We also have a large office in uh, Dallas, Texas. We're looking at opening another office in Europe. So we're pretty active around maintaining the culture, but every new office that you're adding Is changing the culture a little bit, not necessarily in a bad way, just adding another aspect of culture. So Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley are pretty similar, but they're not identical. So it was a culture shift there. Then when we added Dallas, Texas, that was another type of culture shift. So it's highly diversified from a cultural perspective, but, you know, we have our values and principles and I'm pretty happy and proud to say that we managed to keep them in the last seven years curious why Texas? So the short answer is that's where we found the talents that we needed. The long answer is that you know we were very thorough with the way we approach it. We knew we need another office and we knew that we need to hire faster. And as fast as we hired in Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley, we still didn't have enough people and talent. So we did a pretty large project of identifying up-and-coming hotspots for tech innovation in the U.S. that also have uh, financial services talent. and We came with a short list of, I think, 10 different cities and eventually narrowed it down to three or four. And Dallas, Texas, with all the different categories were the winner for us. We also like the culture of the people there. People work hard. People care about the business. And they're very mission-driven. And that's not something that's easy to find. So eventually that we spent a lot of time there and we ended up opening the third office over there. Interesting. You're
0: actually the third fintech company we've interviewed that has offices or headquarters in Dallas in the last three months. We had Gigwage and Bistow. So, you know, both of them, big, big advocates of the Dallas scene. I can see a trend bubbling up there. Let's talk a bit about your experience through the um, recent stimulus program in, in the U.S. and maybe specifically about the PPP program. What are your thoughts around it? Do you think it was uh, well executed or do you have
1: any reflections? First, I think living in the trenches during COVID, early March, and I think if anyone else telling you otherwise, they're not accurate. Nobody knew how bad it's going to be. And if any company going to stay in business in 6 to 12 months, it could have been pretty ugly. We decided, we fundbox decided to focus on our core business, meaning continue to serve new customers and existing customers before we going to expand to the PPP offering that in the beginning, it wasn't even clear if and how it's going to play out. So we were very aggressive on let's focus on what we know best, which is not really you know, government stimulus. It's how we manage our customers and portfolio. And the team performed phenomenally well. And very quickly, I would say even mid-April, it became pretty evident that any of the, of the scenarios that we predicted, which were all of them were pretty bad, are not going to happen that the fact that we have uh, living, breathing, real-time underwriting models are valuable to a fast-moving crisis like COVID, and our losses are not going to be nearly as bad as we thought, even in the best-case scenario. So that was priority number one. Priority number two was okay. Many other companies are going to get into trouble. How can we use this opportunity as grow our market share? And priority number three was okay. Let's see if we can help our customers and other businesses accessing those PPP funds because many large institutions had problems moving fast in an agile way and provide access to PPP funds. So that was, for us, priority number three for the organization. Other companies in the space basically either got into rapid amortization of the securitization line or got their warehouse line pulled because the breach covenants. Basically, the loss rates increased too much for the comfort of the warehouse provider. We didn't have those problems. So we focused on the core business instead of betting all in on the PPP. Once it was clear what the rule of engagement around PPP we started to act not as an agent as many other companies did, but as a direct originator through the PPP program and managed relatively quickly, especially given the considering the fact it was priority number three for our organization to reach basically most of our customers and many other businesses that were not our customers and provide them with PPP funds. On the bright side, I would say the PPP saved many businesses in the US, big and small. I think net-net, uh, that was a very good response from a system that usually moves slowly. And I think the leverage of the fintech companies was inclusive enough that allowed most of this money to reach the right place. Obviously. Some larger companies you know, use the PPP funds and these are, it's it's more of a political question which I'm not going to get into. But I think many smaller and medium-sized businesses were able to access those funds through companies like Fundbox, And I think that made a huge difference in how this crisis from the economic perspective played out so far. So I think people are generally more optimistic today. I don't think we passed COVID. I think it's like the recess, and hopefully, it's going to be done soon. But the most immediate danger was handled, gotta say, relatively well. It could have been a total disaster. There were a few days in March, early March, maybe mid March, that it wasn't even clear if there's going to be enough liquidity in the system. I'm not talking about Funbox, I'm talking about the entire system. So I think overall, the system worked, the Fed. At the time, it was almost like an ER treatment. You don't think about the long-term consequences. You're just making sure the passion, which is the economy, especially the small business economy, and in many cases, large business economy, just stay alive. And they did manage to keep most of them alive. There may be long-term consequences. I'm not smart enough to know what they are. Many people talk about a risk of inflation. But you know that's way above my pay grade. The crisis was averted to a large degree because of the response, and I think without more agile, fast-moving fintech companies, it would be very hard to translate the program to an actual cash in the bank accounts of the smaller businesses. So net net, you know, phase one was successful. So fintech, as you mentioned, fintech really made a big
0: positive difference during this time and to help execute these programs. Do you think at the mainstream level, the industry is doing a good job kind of advertising this and ensuring the consumer really understands
1: the positive impact that fintech has had, particularly this year? No, I don't think there's a fintech. Well, there is a fintech lobby, but I don't think there's a concentrated effort to educate the market, the customers, the different players. Of how important, crucial the fintech ecosystem played important role. The fintech ecosystem played during the PPP. I think some companies do it opportunistically here and there, but I don't think people understand the importance of more agile fintech players during this crisis. I think some people understand it in a different level. Meaning, and not getting too philosophical, but if you're looking at what a country or a nation provides to the ecosystem the basic of security from outside and within, healthcare, financial stability as much as possible, and logistics. And there were a few weeks during this crisis, not only from the fintech or financial services perspective, but I'm sure in Philly as well as Silicon Valley, people stood outside of a grocery shop and couldn't buy groceries. Now, eventually, a big part of... um, you know, people talk about uh, in fintech this notion of overall unbunding the banks. I think in in the economy in general, is not as obvious, but unbunding the state a little bit, if you think about it. What what I mean by that is that Amazon, Instacart, DoorDash, and I'm sure many other companies, they were at certain part more reliable than the traditional system. You could get food to your house, or you could get food at your grocery shop because the logistic system developed in the private industry were robust enough to adjust quickly to the spiking demand and shortage of supply, and they provided parts that usually the state or the nation should provide, and that same thing also happened in in financial services where liquidity that you know is governed and managed by the state plus the banks was in very large part provided by the fintech players. So I think people understand it on on the meta level, but not necessarily consciously sitting at home and saying, oh, thank God for Funbox or thank God for Amazon because I had money to pay my employees and money to buy inventory or I had groceries at my home. But I think Over time, it's going to be part of the reality. Just going to be a fact. And we did get a ton. Like me personally, like thank you for saving my business. My traditional bank couldn't even start to get things in in the right order to provide the PPP funds for me. And I want to move my business to Fundbox now. Fundbox is not a bank, but taking large pieces of the bank offering and we provide it in a more common sense way to the smaller and medium-sized businesses. And I think you see that realization in the people's mind starting to sink in. It was almost like a post-traumatic disorder for many business owners and, and consumers. And now people start to understand, you know, we need the private companies. We need the agile, fast-moving, hungry fintech startups or not fintech startups, depending on what you need at the time, to help the state. Help us.
0: Yeah, that must be very rewarding. And, and I'm sure at a minimum we're going to get a, a bunch of case studies, and I'm sure they're being written as we speak. Um, Eyal, we have quite a few listeners who either are at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journey or they are aspiring founders looking to take that leap. What are some of those lessons that you think
1: they should be aware of uh, based on your experience? Um, I can always share my experience, and I'm sure each person would have different experience. The thing that you can take more of a general rule than very unique experience is stuff that you usually already hear about, meaning I think the first year or so is pretty crucial in shaping the culture and the DNA of the company. It's really hard to change it over time, meaning the co-founder you choose, even something that would seem as mundane as the law firm that you're going to use, it's going to have a lot of effect over how you're going to set up your business, how you're going to plan, you know, structure, transfer pricing, different office location, the emphasis you're putting on your tech stack, those things that seem, you know, just detailed in the ground of your big vision when you're starting a company, but they actually have a huge effect of how you're going to look like two years down the road and seven years down the road. So I would put a lot of emphasis on it. You know, I'm coming from Wharton as well. So i historically been cynical about more soft things like culture and values and principles. But once you're actually going through this in the trenches under fire, you understand how important that is. And I would urge people, once they figure out what the startup is, just as important is what the culture you want to see and what are the core principles and values and just inject them from the beginning. Even if you have three people in a room with a whiteboard, I would definitely focus on that. Another thing that I think we discussed earlier, maybe even before we started the recording, is the importance of product is obviously crucial, but distribution channel is just as crucial as a product. And you can have the perfect product and it's not going to be adopted because there's some kind of a failure or non-consistent plan around how you're going to distribute it so I would spend a lot of time there before going to market
0: the distribution high point i think it's it's very relevant also for podcasting i mean we have some outstanding guests but if we have no way to find the consumers and or the listeners then you know no one's going to listen so i completely relate to that uh, yeah this has been fascinating Thank you again for joining us. Before we go, last question that we'd like to ask all of our guests is maybe you can share a bit about some of your hobbies and how you spend some of your time outside of Funbox, uh, as I'm sure you, know, you have some free time.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't spend a lot of time outside of Funbox for many years, although it's the wrong thing to do. You need to have identity that is not just a startup. Although if you have the obsessive personality that most entrepreneurs do, it's hard to actually do. And especially since COVID started, I don't have a ton of time for hobbies outside of the house. But once the vaccine is out, which may happen in three months, may happen in three years, may take longer. I'm definitely missing uh, scuba diving, which gives you that quiet and peace of mind. More hiking. Although it's hard to do with a small family with very young kids, but I'm gonna do more of that for sure. And funny enough, I miss business travel. I never thought I'm gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, I miss sitting in those lousy lounges in the airport and uh, flying uh, to meet people in person versus doing it over Zoom. So I guess my hobbies have changed a little bit. But uh, one thing I feel like I miss more than everything else is just you know spending some time with people. You know, in front of a whiteboard or a coffee shop, I think there's some kind of serendipity or magic or synergy that happens when few people meet in person, not just over Zoom. So I guess I have new hobbies now. But uh, yeah, most of the stuff you can still do. Maybe you cannot go to a gym, but it's more of an excuse. You can work out at home just to keep sanity. And when it comes to scuba diving, I guess I'll have to wait a little bit longer. I'm with you. I, I definitely miss meeting people over for coffee and miss that
0: coffee scent that you get a, at a nice uh, your local coffee shop. But uh, confident we'll get that uh, sooner rather than later. Who knows? And yeah. Thank you again. Uh, really, really fascinating. Congratulations on everything you've built, and thank you for everything you've done throughout the last six to seven months. We absolutely need more companies like Funbox and. Proud that you are a fellow Wharton
1: alum and and make sure to stop by here once, once it's possible. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it and really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you for
0: listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.